does most of the most teaching here in Australia uh, of my students. There is also Anya, but uh, she always has to go back and forth because she's Dutch and she can't stay. <laughs> so um, uh, Philippa does the most of it, and uh, so that's um, I'm very happy about that. In Germany, I have lots of students teaching. Um, before I actually start on uh, talking about the Dhamma, uh, maybe telling you a little bit about what I do in Germany is interesting. I don't know, I keep it very short in case it isn't. But um, the, uh, <laughs> the interest in the Dhamma in Germany is overwhelming. Um, nothing compared to what goes on here in Australia. I haven't had an audience of 20 or 25 people in years. Uh, when I give a talk in Germany, it's more like between 200 and 800. Um, I gave a talk the other day. Where was it? Where was I? <laughs> Many cities everywhere. Oh, in Berlin, my hometown. And uh, in a little theater. And it was sold out weeks earlier. They had to pay $10, uh, 10 marks to get in. Um, and it, it seated 600 people. And I gave a talk in Lindau, which is not far from Buddha House in the south of Germany, and also in one of those little theaters, and there were 700 people. And uh, I quite often get invited uh, to go to a, a bookshop, because that way they can sell my books better, <laughs> naturally. And I don't mind, because I mean, after all, I've written the silly things, so they might as well get sold, you know. So um, they never have less than 200 people. And uh, they're very keen for me to come, because that way they really sell the books. And so we go, I go, when it's possible. Um, so the, the interest is enormous. Um, I have also aroused the interest of the media, uh, to a quite a uh, well, to my mind, and quite an exaggerated extent. Um, if that happened, would have happened to me if I, when I was younger, I probably would have got conceded. Now that's uh, <laughs> out of the question. <laughs> so it's a good thing it happens to me now. Um, there was a uh, well, I've been on numbers of television shows and whenever that happens the phone at Buddha House rings incessantly and my poor Gudrun has really to work her head off to try and uh, send out the information to everybody well, we just had a, a show on the 16th of January I wasn't there but I have the video uh, it was sent to me, I have it here in Brisbane of that television show and it's a 45 minute what they call a profile on my life and uh, it's quite nice um, my son had all the things to complain about which he didn't like <laughs> he thought it was uh, too many flowers and uh, a bit of kitsch here and all that <laughs> but uh, I think they did quite a nice job on it and uh, Actually, it shows me at what Buddha Dhamma, um, the day before I left for Sri Lanka to be ordained. And uh, that was the day of the wedding of John and um, 
Bridget, Bridget. Uh, they're long divorced, of course. But uh, anyway, that was the day they got married, and I, I was wearing a, a, a sari and uh, long black hair. And then <laughs> that was at the ward. And uh, then they also showed a, a photo of my kuti at the ward in that um, uh, television show. And so it's, um, it's quite nice. I mean, uh, the way they've done it, I thought it was quite clever, you know, using old photos and things. So since that happened, the phone has again been ringing incessantly. And not only that, but my German books have uh, been selling enormously well. People order 30 and 40 at a time. Not people. Uh, these are distributors for bookshops and they order 30 and 40 at a time and uh, distribute them to the bookshops. And seeing I've put a lot of time and effort into these books, I'm very happy if they get sold. And also, at this time in my life, I don't feel so energetic anymore as I used to. Um, I'll be 73 this August, and um, I've had four operations, so I'm not feeling... Well, I'm feeling all right. I'm not sick or anything, but I don't have a lot of energy. And so I uh, use time for books because I can reach a lot of people with the Dhamma then, with the books, um, even more than with the, than with the tapes. Um, we sell thousands of tapes in Germany, and I'm not exaggerating because that too is lying, exaggerating. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, we sell about 4,000 tapes a year minimum of my Dhamma talks. But even that is, uh, doesn't go as far as the books because people might listen to them once and then not again. Whereas with the books, they give them to other people and they, uh, I think they are very uh, effective in uh, really uh, propagating the Dhamma. And in uh, Germany, yes, uh, in Central Europe, I would say, well, there's somebody in Holland, but there's very little Theravadan teaching. Um, what they had until um, not so long ago has been Zen and, of course, Tibetan. Uh, Tibetan lamas are everywhere, but most of them don't speak a single word of German. And if they do, I don't understand what they're saying. Um, and m most of them don't even know English. And the Germans, although they all claim that they know English, don't really know English. <laughs> they all think they do, but they don't really, unless they've been in England or America. Um, you can tell by the books they pick, because we have my English books there too, but they never sell <laughs> they, they don't go anywhere. So um, the uh, the lamas are a very. Um, there's a lot of that going on in Germany and in the other countries around, like Switzerland and Austria. Uh, in Austria, not so much, but Switzerland and Holland. And there's a lot of Zen. But Theravadan is markedly uh, lagging behind. So when I arrived in Germany six years ago and started teaching the Theravadan teaching, um, people were very surprised 
and uh, it uh, it seems to really uh, touch them because it's well it's western it's very western the way I teach of course and uh, I'm born to the language I was born to the German language and uh, the uh, the results have been really very fascinating this new Metta Vihara, this new forest monastery, I like to say something about that because it's very dear to my heart. It's a 90-year-old vision by Venerable Nanatiloka. Venerable Nanatiloka was the first German monk and um, he became a monk in 1903 in Burma and he was a teacher of the Venerable Nanaponika. Nanaponika just died last year at the age of 93. and. Um, Nana Tiloka always had the vision that he wanted to make a forest monastery in Germany. But two uh, world wars intervened and never got around to it. And uh, also he was interned by the British because the British couldn't, um, although they had great freedom and could do what they like, uh, they were still Germans and they got interned. And Nana Ponika did too, together with Lama Govinda. And they were all spending their war years together in these internment camps and did most of their translations there and uh, so Nana Tiloka has translated from Pali he was a real Pali scholar um, numbers of um, scriptures which have never been published and I've made it my business to have them published in German Um, they, they would be a great bestseller they're extremely scholarly and uh, I don't think I'll ever read them they're the, the Abhidhamma and that type of thing but I think it was necessary even as an honor to him and to the work he has done that they should finally be published so we have published his translation of the Dhammapada which is very nice and people do buy that and it's published in a big uh, uh, volume and in a small one also that you can stick in your pocket, which is really nice. And we have published um, four talks of his about karma and rebirth. And um, we have now published the um, uh, Abhidhamata Sangaha, which is, uh, as the word tells you, uh, Abhidhamma. And it's a sort of... Um, compilation of seven Abhidhamma books, the uh, Pali Canon, which is the basis for Theravadan teaching, consists of three parts. It's called the T Pitika. T is three and Pitika basket, three baskets. And uh, that's the Vinaya, the rules for monks and nuns, the suttas, the discourses by the Buddha, and the Abhidhamma. Abhi is higher, Dhamma, higher Dhamma. It's the philosophical um, treatise on the suttas. And nothing of that has ever been translated into German. And these manuscripts have been lying around for the past 50 years. And so we finally got it um, published just two weeks before I left. Um, it's, um, well, it's something for people who really want to get into the study of it. He had this vision for 90 uh, 90 years ago, 
that he wanted to make this forest monastery never happened. So now we're doing it. And uh, I feel very happy about that. And I feel that um, I'll probably be alive long enough, um, in fact I'm sure, I'll be alive long enough to see the uh, um, see it finished. It's, um, we have, uh, let's see, seven times three, 22 acres, 21, 22 acres. In Germany it's hectares, I can't, I never quite know what it is, but it's 20 acres, let's say 20 acres. And uh, forest, and meadows, and uh, a creek, and an uh, 11-bedroom house, which is a 300-year-old farmhouse, which was um, transformed or um, changed into a small hotel and restaurant by the former owners, and they went bankrupt because they couldn't look after it anymore, they got old and the bank um, made an, a compulsory auction at which we bought it. It's uh, about half an hour from Buddha House in the south of Germany, in the foothills of the Alps. You're on, a, on a clear day, you can see the snow-covered Alps from every window. And uh, the, uh, it's totally isolated. You don't see another house. You don't hear any cars, nothing. There's not, there's no proper road. There's only our own road that leads to it. And yet it's only 20 minutes from the main town in the south of, in Bavaria, from Kempten, from the railhead. It's only 20 minutes to the railhead. So it's um, a beautiful location. And here in Australia, that doesn't seem so strange because this is still a country where there's a lot of land available, even though it might not be in the right place where one wants it. But in Germany, there's no land available. It's uh, uh, overpopulated. And to be able to find a place like that, which is just exactly what we wanted, is almost like a miracle. And uh, also, I mean, it costs a lot of money, of course, but uh, we got it comparatively cheaper because it was an auction. Um, so what is happening now it's getting totally renovated inside and in spring it will be renovated outside and what the plan for it is is uh, well anybody wants to be monk or nun can come and uh, first live there for a year and see if they really want to be it and uh, but um, also we offer the place as a monastery on time so what we uh, what I envision is that people can come when it's finished um, for a minimum of one month. I haven't, don't think I need to set a maximum, whatever time they've got, uh, to have a really retreat from the world. And uh, as I say, we have 11 bedrooms there, so uh, at the moment we don't have to think of adding to that, because I don't think there'll be that many people all at once. Um, and we'll see what happens. So at the moment we have uh, a lot of my students also working there for free, which is very helpful. And uh, we have some real tradesmen that get paid a lot of money. And we have some tradesmen that are friends who work for uh, very little. So 
it's uh, we have about four, five, six, sometimes eight people working there at the same time, and uh, it's all going on very well. And I think it will be very beautiful. In fact, it is very beautiful, uh, except that it's not livable yet. <laughs> it's still a bit of a mess. <laughs> but um, so that is actually something that I'm extremely happy about. That this can come about sort of at the end of my life and uh, we were keen on it but nothing offered itself and then this happened so these are the things that are happening in Germany and of course um, I don't know if you know but uh, some of you do uh, German is the language that is most spoken in Central Europe um, it's not English everybody knows a little bit of English they can all say you know what time it is and how to buy apples but uh, the language which is mostly spoken in the center of Europe is German uh, Dutch people speak German they all speak German the Swiss the only real language that they have in common is German because they speak different languages in Switzerland uh, Austrians is their language is German in Hungary half of Hungary speaks German in Poland it used to be Germany. The first, the um, western part of Poland speaks German. So, and Germany is in the middle of it all, in the middle of Europe. So we do have a lot of um, people coming from everywhere now that the borders are all open. That also hasn't happened before. I mean, for you this is all far removed, isn't it? But Europe has been little tiny countries uh, for ever so long. And uh, it's uh, the whole of Europe is, well, it might be the size of Australia, I'm not quite sure. But it's all divided up into different languages, different countries, different currencies. Wherever you went, you had to show your passport and get a visa and uh, be asked a lot of silly questions. Um, that's no more. You can practically, all the borders are open. And they are very diligently working on a united Europe with one currency and uh, they'll never make one language but uh, the one most spoken is German um, they'll never manage to have one language but they want one currency and no more passports and visas so that's um, really a great step forward in peacefulness one can hope And I was at a peace university in Berlin, which was a beautiful concept. didn't work out the way it was conceived, um, where everybody was talking about whatever it is that they're doing so that they could help peace along. But it wasn't... It wasn't... It's strange because the people who were there and were giving talks were all fantastic people. There were, was Pierre Inyat Khan, he's the head of the Sufi movement, and um, uh, Raymond Panika, who's a well-known, very well-known um, religious philosopher, I suppose you could say. There were seven Nobel Prize winners. Uh, so, I mean, everybody you could find really and still the thing really didn't get completely off the ground and there was a lot of um, 
controversy about it too. So a peace university with controversy is a great pity, isn't it? <laughs> well, I said my peace <laughs> as usual, and I did the loving kindness meditations as usual, and um, there were 200 people, 300 people listening, and I thought it was well worth it, and uh, wandered around my hometown, which is the biggest building site in the world. There's no bigger building site than Berlin. There's building going on everywhere. It's quite amazing. And uh, it was very interesting. And I thought it was, you know, well worth my, my efforts to go there. It was strenuous. It's very strenuous, but it was well worth it. So all these things are happening in Europe, and um, I think that uh, they're promising. They're promising for a better, um, better world community. Although what's also happening in Europe is right next door to Germany, they're killing each other. There's a war going on, and they haven't been able to stop it. I mean, everybody has tried, and it's still going on. And sometimes they think it's a religious war, but actually what it is, it's more an ethnic war. They want to have their own countries. The Croatians and the Serbians don't want to live together. Uh, same thing everywhere, all the time. So, in spite of all these efforts that people are making, that is also happening. And that's the Dhamma, isn't it? We all have the good roots and the, and the unwholesome roots in us. Um, what I thought I'd like to talk I'm sorry if I've taken up too much time with all these uh, um, uh, just news items <laughs> but I thought maybe it's interesting especially for those of you who had come to Germany and been with me in Germany it's more interesting for you um Okay. Um, I want to give an overview of what the Dhamma is, is uh, uh, contains. I've done that before, and um, well, obviously in 21 or 22 years of teaching, I've done all of it before. And sometimes I feel as if I'm an used-up record, saying the same things over and over again. Um, but I've have felt that this overview is uh, quite important to give one if one wants to uh, know give one an insight into what one actually has to do in order uh, to internalize the Dhamma there was an interesting item I'll get back to some of these news items again. There was an interesting item in the, in the most um, prestigious German newspaper while the Peace University was going on. And this prestigious German newspaper, which is usually quite bland about religious things, said, well, even the Dalai Lama is always saying the same thing. Mm. Well, yes. Of course he is. I mean, what else is there to say? Um, but what... And, and then I said, you know, the best, the bestseller of all times has been the Bible. And uh, I thought the Bible had been translated into over 300 languages. 
But the people who were on the platform with me immediately interjected and said, no, 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 1264 uh, languages. I can't imagine, but anyway, I said, all right. Um, and it's a bestseller of all time. It's the most read book ever. It's the first printed book. It's the first book that was ever printed, the Gutenberg Bible. And, uh, and what happened? People read it. And then they say, oh, yes, that's right. And then they go about their business with the same roots of evil as they had before. So whether the Dalai Lama keeps saying the same thing, whether the Buddha keeps saying the same thing, or at the tail end of all this, whether I keep saying the same thing, really makes no difference. One's got to do it. And that's the most important part of the Dhamma that we have to do it each one for ourselves naturally the guidelines that we get from the Buddha are extremely important they are so to say the uh, core and essence of it all that we have those guidelines if we didn't have those guidelines we probably couldn't do it at all I know I couldn't I wouldn't have a clue when I heard the Buddha's teachings for the first time, I thought to myself, that's right. That's something I really can do, and I can really try and follow that. Um, naturally, some things we can do on our own. We all have a conscience, and we can try and live with that conscience, and we do. But to go beyond that, we really need some guidance. But that's it. That's all it is. The Buddha calls himself just the shower of the way. We can believe what he says. We can disbelieve what he says. We can argue about it. We can write about it. We can learn it by heart. It doesn't make any difference. If we don't do it, it makes no difference whatsoever. And again and again, it shows that even there, where the teaching of the Buddha is well established if the people don't do it there's chaos absolute chaos so we have actually an advantage we don't have an old established Buddhist tradition in the West so nothing of what we hear about the Dhamma is sort of mechanical all that we um, can latch on to is something that we may have felt within and then get it uh, confirmed by the Buddha's teaching. And that way we have um, a better opportunity to really practice it. The practice of the Dhamma consists of three parts. Wherever you look in the Dhamma, it's always three parts. It's always sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is moral conduct, and samadhi is concentration, and panya is inside wisdom. Well, panya means wisdom, but inside wisdom is a better, um, better way of uh, realizing what is meant. These three are always within every teaching the Buddha gave. And any spiritual teaching that doesn't con contain those three isn't worth paying attention to. 
it's got to contain those three. It's got to contain moral uh, conduct, the way we behave. It's got to contain the con- meditation, the concentration, and it has to contain the inside arising. Now, in the Buddha's teaching, we find it over and over again, and we can look at it in this way. Our moral behavior, our everyday behavior, the way we act with other people, is a foundation, is what we actually found and um, base our life on. And if that's not in order, we can't go on. Because, first of all, we'll feel agitated. We'll feel probably also some remorse regret maybe we feel anger and hate towards some imaginary person who is supposedly the uh, causation of all that but if we get our behavior to the point where we can look upon it with equanimity and where we can at night when we go to bed recapitulate the whole day and are quite contented with the way we have conducted ourselves then we have a good foundation for spiritual life I often recommend that we can in the evening sort of um, make a balance sheet we can do it in our mind we can do it on a piece of paper whatever we like some people like to use pen and paper some people just do it in their heads what went on all day and whether all the confrontations that one has had and everybody has confrontations nobody gets away without them whether we have mastered them whether we were economists about them whether we could be loving about them to to other people or whether we got irate and angry and upset and nervous and agitated and restless and worried or whatever else have we done and have a look and see what actually happened during this one day and then if we find any of the things that happened that we are not too happy about which we think oh well I could have done that one better no need to blame ourselves none whatsoever the only thing that's necessary is to recognize recognition no blame change there's nothing to blame there's nobody there to blame anyway but that's a later Uh, aspect of the teaching but it's useless to blame because blaming is also negative and if we've already done something negative and then blame on top of it we've got two negativities instead of one and why should we blame ourselves it's already happened what we can do is recognition and then make a determination saying well that one wasn't very useful I'll won't repeat it and instead I'll repeat all the things which are useful I like to compare that to a shopkeeper who makes a balance sheet in the evening in his shop and looks at all the things that were sold and that really went well that people really wanted to buy and then he looks at the rest of the stuff that's sitting there and been sitting there for weeks well if he were to reorder those things that are sitting there for weeks be very foolish wouldn't it so he's going to reorder those things that everybody wants well what does everybody want everybody wants lovingness helpfulness 
um, a way of um, uh, being together which is harmonious well we can reorder that without any trouble but any of the other stuff much better just to leave it where it is but not blaming oneself that's not the idea behind it all it just is and uh, if we were to blame ourselves for everything we've ever done wrong only in this one lifetime we'd never get out of blaming ourselves it's a it's a futile uh, assignment and then if we add to that all the all the lifetimes we already had before that I mean it's just hopeless it's totally hopeless it's useless so we just look at this one day and we see what went on and if it all was harmonious and loving and if our inner uh, reality was one of steadfastness patience perseverance giving we're happy about it and then we have a good chance in meditation and we can look upon this whole thing as a foundation a bridge and the other side of the bridge the goal the foundation this side of the bridge is our behavior the bridge towards insight is the meditation and inside is where we're trying to get to it's so to say the other side of the bridge or the other bank of the river as it is usually called but if we think of a bridge we can say we'll walk over the bridge and come to the other side of the river meditation is not a goal in itself it's not a purpose in itself it's a means it's an absolutely essential means but it's not the purpose of the whole Dhamma the reason why it is an absolutely essential means is because it's the only way we can ever get from the worldly duality thinking to the higher level of consciousness which is unity consciousness which has nothing to do with enlightenment or insight it's just a different way of having awareness here the word consciousness is being used as awareness now we know the awareness we have every day we don't even have to talk about it everybody is other than we are ourselves this is me and this is everybody else and our optics seem to prove that everybody is a little lump by themselves but that's just an optical illusion in reality we know already from our scientists that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe everything are energy particles that come together and fall apart now if those scientists who formulated these words would have taken themselves as an example of that they might be enlightened today but what they actually did was they just specified that that's the way it is in the universe forgetting that they themselves are part of the universe and are exactly the same and so are we our optics tell us that we are all separate and our ego illusion tells us the same thing because we have that illusion that we are a separate entity it also tells us 
that we have to protect the special entity that we are. And that the special entity that we are wants things, needs things, is going to get things, is going to become somebody, is somebody, knows things, all sorts of ideas we have about the special entity. And in our daily life, that of course manifests in our duality consciousness that here's me and there's you, and here's us and there's them, and here I am and out there's nature. Which is one of the reasons why we have played such havoc with nature. Killing rainforests and uh, um, polluting streams and all that, that sort of thing. Because we don't, we don't realize that we are nature. We think that's out there and we are in here. Our everyday consciousness is always concerned with how am I going to do the best for this person? How am I going to get somewhere? How am I going to become that what I want to be? Even though we may not notice it, that we're doing that. It's always concerned with that. And because we can't be sure, we can never be sure, that this I, this person, is going to get what it wants and get rid of what it doesn't want, we are never totally at ease. There's always unrest. There's um, a feeling of agitation inside. There's never a total peacefulness. And because none of us have total peacefulness, there's never total peacefulness in the world. Because we are the world. One person that gains total peacefulness makes peace for the world. Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. But you've got to have the peace within. You can't make it out there. You've got to have it inside. And most people are perfectly happy to agree to that. Even the United Nations have it in their preamble. What has that helped? Not much, has it? I mean, maybe a little, I don't know, but not much. I went there once in New York, 1987, to the United Nations building and gave a talk there. None of the big uh, countries sent a representative to listen. <laughs> Only the small ones. <laughs> and I don't think I made any impression on them. But anyway, I tried. So, um, <laughs> it was very interesting for me to be there. It was most interesting. The way I got there was because the um, uh, ambassador for the United Nations from Sri Lanka was a friend of mine, and so he invited me to come. Otherwise, I would never have got there. Um, so this ordinary, everyday duality consciousness, everybody carries it around with them. Everybody knows that everybody's got it, and it's constantly playing havoc with our inner peace and inner joy because we need something, we think, from outside that's going to make us happy. Something that comes to our senses. Either seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling or thinking. Something that's going to come in from out there and really make us happy. And it doesn't work. 
it never has worked and never will. Because even if we do, and there's no reason why we don't, uh, get pleasant sensations and pleasant sense contacts, how long do they last? They're all very brief and we have to renew them. And so we spend time and energy, the whole world, everybody does, time and energy on getting the pleasures from outside to come in. It doesn't make us happy, it gives pleasure. And so, in order to find a totally different dimension of insight, we do need the meditation. Because that different dimension of insight will not come by itself. The, it is said in the, in the scriptures that sometimes people have meditated in their past lives and they gain insight without meditating in this life. But these are rare exceptions. And I would think, that's my personal thought, that in this day and age of technology, which is actually <coughs> our religious, such exceptions would be almost impossible to find. We have a, a technocratic society and not a spiritual society. And those people who really want to know the spiritual truths are still in the minority. I told you about uh, a lot of interest in Germany that six, seven hundred people come to a talk, but there are 80 million Germans. So, the, uh, the still minority, a great minority. And um, so we, we need the meditative mind, the calm mind, so that we can see something different, that we can have finally an experience of unity. When we get an experience of unity, we see the world in a different light. When the mind becomes concentrated, after it's been thinking and pondering and arguing and uh, resisting and labeling and all doing all sorts of things, which all minds do when they first start meditating, and it's finally given up all this, and finally said, well, all right, then I'll get concentrated, it's too bothersome, and uh, just do it, then we have that opportunity, the opportunity of having a totally different awareness and that totally different awareness brings us to an understanding of a different dimension which is always present that different dimension but we never relate to it in daily living we never think of it even unless we meditate successfully every day and then when we do we can take that different dimension into daily life which doesn't mean that we have to remove ourselves from daily living not at all and it doesn't mean that we are disgusted with the world or anything like that because disgust is also negative and negativity doesn't help well, what it means is that we see the things that are happening in the world in a different light. I very often compare it to playing with a child. I have ample opportunity at the moment to play with small children. I've got two grandchildren 
one is one and a half and one is five and so the one and a half year old of course likes to build towers with blocks and uh, gets quite irate when the tower falls together and it all goes to pieces because he's still fairly clumsy that happens every time the tower falls to bits so the child squeaks obviously what do I do? I try to soothe him and try to tell him it's not very terrible that the tower fell to bits we can make a new one and it's not so important and we'll try and do something else well that's the way we see the world when we've seen a different dimension everybody's trying to build towers and everybody's towers fall to bits and it doesn't really matter we can soothe them we can help them we can try to show them how to build a better tower if they are insisting on building a tower but we can also tell them don't scream it doesn't matter there will always be another tower but the reality lies somewhere else and this is how we take the different dimension of the meditation into daily living and that means that all our confrontations that we have in daily living and everybody has them there's no doubt about it if we um, don't have too many people that we meet every day we have, don't have that many confrontations but we always have to confront ourselves there's always something going on inside we always have to confront that all the time so those things we see that they're just games they're not the real thing the real thing is further beyond the once we see a different level of understanding that we have that within us we can relate everything to it so now when we have unity consciousness for instance that means that we do not believe anymore in this optical illusion that we're all separate because in meditation we have actually experienced the fact that we're not that there is one creation and don't think of a creator just think of a creation you can see that creation all you have to do is look it's everywhere and we're part of this creation and this creation doesn't mean that there are bits and pieces everywhere it's one and in meditation we do feel that we feel that oneness and we lose the boundaries the boundaries which we put around the body and we also put around time we have boundary in time past, present, future three types of time and because we always have that we don't live in the present and when we don't live in the present we don't live at all because what we're doing is we're trying to remember what was in the past and we're trying to project what's going to be in the future instead of living what's in the present but if we live in this present moment and this is another thing we learn from meditation we actually become acquainted with eternity because each moment that we live is always a moment followed by a moment and as we have each moment as our life experience there's nothing else there's no past there's no future it just is and then we have lost the boundary of time and we've lost the boundary of this body 
and although it looks exactly the same as it did before, and everybody looks the same as before, we know differently. And as we know differently, we can then use the Buddha's teaching to try and understand what he means by the fact that we're all living in an illusion, in an illusion of self. And the insight wisdom which the Buddha talks about, which is the goal of the practice, consists of three bits, three parts, three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the corelessness of all that exists. Now we can pick one of those three and investigate. But without having a feeling for the fact that the way we think in everyday life is too limited, without that, our understanding of those three characteristics will also be too limited. They will be intellectual. And although an intellectual understanding is very helpful, it's much more than most people have. It doesn't change one's character. It's got to be an inner feeling. And when it becomes an inner feeling that I am totally impermanent, absolutely transient, really translucent and not solid, there's no fear of death. And when there's no fear of death, there's no fear at all. Because that's what we're all afraid of. Even though we may not admit it, it doesn't matter. We're afraid of annihilation. Whether we say we are afraid of men or women or dark or spiders or snakes or whatever we may be afraid of, doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. We're afraid of annihilation. And once we've seen that there's nobody there to be annihilated, all fear goes. And only when fear goes can we really live in a sense of peace, and a sense of inner security in a way of real lovingness towards others because they're not others they're me or they're as much me as I'm me and only then comes there that kind of peacefulness that people usually look for in the meditation and which we can get temporarily in the meditation but solidly only when we have seen how very transient everything is I always recommend that one should have one of those little clocks that um, uh, move all the time what do you call these things these uh, digital things digital clocks you look at it and you see everything moves and we think that time is moving and we are standing still. What nonsense. We are moving just as much as the little digital clock is moving. Right with it. And on an ordinary clock you can't see it that well. I mean it moves too but it isn't quite as noticeable. But on a digital clock you can't avoid it. And we move along. It's like sitting in a train and you look out the window and you think that the whole scenery is moving and you are sitting still. <laughs> The train's going too, isn't it? And you're moving with it. It's the same as the clock. We're moving along. 
And once you see that, and once you feel it, not knowing, that's the first step. We've got to understand it and know it. That's the first step. Very important. But then when you feel it, then you feel everything differently. And as you feel things differently, you can actually let go of all the um, things within which are burdensome. You can let them go. Everything that one would like to be, that one isn't, or that one is and wouldn't like to be, or that others are and one doesn't want them to be, or that others are not and we'd like them to be. I mean, all these things that we all deal with all the time, huh? you know, when you look at it and say, well, it's all moving. Next moment, they'll be different, and they will be, quite certainly so. And when you have that overview, which is an overview, it's like a bird's eye view. You look, you look sort of from above at the whole thing, which is moving. It doesn't have the kind of thing that otherwise our daily happenings most of the time have for us. And why do they sting? Because we think there's somebody sitting inside that really has to be protected, that really has to have things the way we have figured them out. We have made an imaginary life for ourselves. We imagine the way things are. And because reality and imagination never meet, we can never be totally satisfied. We need to look at it and see, is it true? It's no use saying, oh yeah, that's all true, finished. Or saying, it's all untrue, that's not the way I am at all, finished. That's no good either. Neither the affirmative nor the doubt are any use. The only thing to do is to contemplate it really try to go inside and see, is it like that? Do I have that? Is the Buddha telling me how to get rid of these um, uncertainties, difficulties, fears, dislikes, reactions? Can I do it? And if the answer is yes, there's nothing else to do but practice. Practice is the only thing that really matters. Everything else is just sort of extraneous matter but practice is the one thing that matters so in the first instance just to recapitulate in the first instance we see and look at our behavior in daily life and see whether we're satisfied with it and contented with it we can't meditate if we're not contented we would like to become contented because of our meditation but we have to bring contentment to the meditation pillow Joy is a very important factor, a prerequisite for meditation. We're happy about the way we have been going. That's our first step. The second is to try to become concentrated. What do we have to do in order to become concentrated? Well, most of you know, we've got to let go of all that thinking. How do we do that? Well, by recognizing the fact that the thinking is the world as we know it. And we'd like to transcend that. We'd like to become aware of a higher dimension and tell that to oneself again and again and again. 
until the mind eventually believes it. It's a very set in its habitual ways of thinking, but eventually it does believe it if it's told often enough. The same with the loving kindness. If it's told often enough to love other people, it finally says, well, all right, then I'll try. You know? <laughs> in the beginning it says, oh, I can't love that person, impossible. But uh, in the end, the mind sort of says, well, okay, then I'll give it a go. And uh, it's the same with this, with the concentration. Eventually, the mind does become tired of all this thinking. It's very tiring. Thinking is extremely tiring with dukkha. And uh, no need for it at all. So that's our second step. To get the mind unified, concentrated. To have it in, a, in a, such a way that you can't shake it. It becomes imperturbable. And the Buddha calls it also, when it becomes concentrated, malleable, flexible, and uh, so that it can see further than before. And having done that, then we have a look. What we can actually see, which goes far beyond of what is within our optics, far beyond what is within our thinking, because it is an inner realization and as we get that our whole being changes one can say that we are what we put our mind on well check it out and see where do you put your mind that's what we are and people many people quite rightly so would like to be helpful to others. It's a nice thing to do, and it's very important. But we can only help others as far as we've already helped ourselves. Whatever we find within us, that we can give to others. You know, when the Buddha spoke, the people were able to become enlightened hearing one Dhamma talk. We have this Dhamma talks. So it's not the words, is it? The Dhamma talks are there. They, they, they are translated into English. are no problem at all. So it's not the words at all. It's what comes out of a person. It's that emanation that came from the Buddha. It's that emanation of each one of us that changes our surroundings, and that changes the world. So if we would like to have a better quality of life for ourselves and for everything else that is around us, the inner change will do that. I think you've been patient long enough, listened long enough. If you have any questions, you can ask me questions. I'm not at the moment relating quite well to what you're saying. The first stage was moral conduct. Ah, okay. 
second one you said was France and things is not not Ah, yes, and then you come to, uh, I said, unity consciousness, right? Yes, yes. Anything else? Hmm. Uh, it seems that way to me, but I often wonder, because you see, I compare that to a doctor. A doctor sits in his uh, office, and all he sees are sick people. So he must be thinking everybody is sick, right? And all I see are people who want to learn to meditate. So I must be thinking everybody wants to learn to meditate, you know, but not true. <laughs> But um, uh, truthfully so, yes, I am convinced, actually. I am convinced that there is an increase, yes. Um, well, the numbers uh, that I was mentioning in Germany, I have never met before anywhere, you know, that many people. And um, not that these people all want to practice. Uh, they come out of curiosity, too, you know. Um, but there are more and more people practicing, that's true, but it's still not enough. <laughs> yes? Yeah. I remember what in Germany last year, I said at one place, that you come to the conclusion that there are the equal stars. Well, uh, not God as an anthropomorphic figure, of course. I mean, obviously, and uh, I think most people who think about God and have uh, a fair to middling intelligence are not thinking about a person there, although you'd be surprised how many people do, how many people do think about a personal God. Um, but um, the, the word God is just a word, it's just a concept. And uh, if you think of it as the underlying reality out of which everything springs, but which it can only spring out of it if there is the craving to be, which is creation, then we can come to that understanding that Nibbana is the underlying reality, but it can only be the personal um, manifestation if there is that desire to be. And that's why God is also equated to creator, but that's the wrong way of thinking of it. It is creation is there, but no creator. And uh, if you think of God as um, the, um, the whole of it, everything, nothing excluded, universe after universe after universe, uh, galaxy after galaxy after galaxy, nothing excluded, and not anything in it, only in it when it wants to be in it, when it wants to manifest, when something wants to manifest. And we come, come to Nibbana. That's Nibbana. Well, Meister Eckhart, whom I usually use as, um, um, to quote from, 
said God exists because a creature exists, which is a personal God, right? But behind God is the Godhead. And so he's using the word Godhead as that which is overshadowing everything, consisting of everything. And uh, he also, one of his main teaching, or the main teaching was to let go of the I, of the me. That was his main teaching. And uh, if you let go of the me, then God finds room to be. As soon as you let go of me, God finds room to be. There's a very beautiful poem by him. And uh, as long as, as soon as you let go of me, Nibbana finds room to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't need to agree or disagree, but I can just go back to the Buddha's words. He said we're born with six roots, three good ones and three bad ones, wholesome and unwholesome. The unwholesome ones are greed, hate and delusion, and the wholesome ones are uh, love and generosity and wisdom. And all of us are born with all six. We all have all of them. Uh, born when we when we appear out of the mother's womb, yeah. And uh, it's our choice which one of these roots we strengthen and which one of these roots um, uh, we try to eliminate or try to uh, minimize. If we become aware of them, that we do something about them. And if we finally come to the stage where we understand that. You know, there, there's, it's all a mistake because delusion is the mistaken view of me. Then the hate and greed disappear, and then you have only the good ones left. So everybody's got everything. It's a choice we make. Now, also these choices are karmic resultants. However, they're not fate. We have free will. We can choose. And uh, so. It's a matter of awareness. And people are terribly deluded sometimes to think what is good and what is not good, of course, because we don't see so clearly. But it's quite right, you know, everybody's got the goodness, but everybody's got the badness too, unfortunately. So, yes. Why don't people practice? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to know too. <laughs> I don't understand it myself. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's effort. Let's put it that way. I think the main culprit is the third hindrance, sloth and torpor. You know, lie down and watch television or something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you, you, you really are never comfortable. I mean, you're comfortable for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then you have to do something else. And, you know, it's, uh, 
I mean, I can see it so clearly watching these two little kids, you know. It's really very uh, um, enlightening. <laughs> They've got all the dukkha in the world, and their parents try with all their might to reduce the dukkha, but no way, no way, not possible. You know, there's always dukkha. Yeah, why don't people practice? It's amazing, isn't it? And you know, the most amazing thing that I find is that even those people who have had some success in their meditation don't practice. And that I find even more uh, amazing. I mean, if you've never had a moment of concentration and then you get fed up and frustrated, I can understand that, right? You need a pep talk by somebody. But if you've been quite all right in your meditation, it went quite well, and then you stop. I don't understand that at all. I have no understanding why this happens. And if I ask the person who it happens to, they can't explain it either. So it must be that third hindrance loss and talk. Yes. Oh, you mean because people's minds are so convoluted they need something which is far more complicated. Yeah, well, they can read the Abhidhamma. That's as convoluted as you can get. <laughs> There's nothing to stop them. It's all in English is available. Seven, seven volumes of it. No, there's no creator. The word creation is happening. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. No, that that's a yeah. Well, <laughs> that's the kind. No, uh, I I do it on purpose because I like for people to break through the kind of thinking that they have been doing because of, well, actually being brainwashed into that way. The word creation is a perfectly good word um, without a creator when you think of it that that there is something created which means it's happening. It's the same thing. It doesn't, you see, it has... Well, the word God has a connotation. The word love is, is heavily, um, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it has a really heavy meanings for everybody. A God, creation, creator. But it's not necessary. When we see the things as they really are, these are just words and concepts. And we can use them. Um, in... Um, you see, in Europe, where nobody's really a Buddhist, I only talk to Catholics, it's uh, very important that you use their language and show them 
that it's the same thing. It's not my experience, not my experience at all. The people who come to listen to me um, are totally uh, frustrated by the church. They've had it. Um, they, they don't want to go anymore. They have heard it since they were, as you say in Australia, knee-high to a grasshopper, and they can no longer stand it because it doesn't make sense. And if, you, if I am able to make sense out of their confusion they are extremely grateful they, they find that the greatest help they, they, you see um, you have a different um, approach you are what is known as a born Buddhist <laughs> and uh, that is um, a totally different story altogether that's totally different um, I must say that in Sri Lanka I was uh, several times told that how could I know what the Dhamma is I wasn't a born Buddhist well it didn't bother me at all but um, when you deal with people like I deal with who are well Catholics more so than uh, Protestants who feel guilty about having left the church and not going back there anymore and not making sense out of the whole thing and feeling pretty negative about what they've been told they feel so relieved when they find out that actually it does make sense all they have to do is practice and they'll find out themselves it's, um, it's a different it's a different approach and uh, I've never been Catholic uh, I've been Jewish but even that was nothing I never practiced anything um, but I have the, the Western approach, you know, the, the non-Buddhist approach, so to say. And uh, the uh, Christian mystics, uh, which I have read to some extent, have given me an, I would, well, I, maybe, yes, I think I can say, have given me an insight into the uh, um, possibilities that exist in Christianity. They're there. Teresa of Davila, Meister Eckhart, Francisco de Asuna, all these people knew exactly what was going on. They had exactly the right understanding. They used different terminology. So when you speak to people like I do, who use that different terminology but can't make any sense out of it, it helps them a great deal to find out that there is some sense to it. It doesn't take them back to the church. Not at all. In fact, it makes them more solidly grounded in practicing Buddhism. 
<laughs> you see, I tell them also something else. Um, I tell them that the word Buddhist and the word Buddhism was never used by the Buddha. It's a much later invention. The Buddha used the word practitioner and he used the word Dhamma. And so it's no, not necessary to become a Buddhist in order to practice. And I've told them that over and over again. And you know, I have 150 or 160 people in a meditation course, and I give refuge at the end of it. And all 150 take it. After I've told them they don't have to be Buddhists. Because that is what attracts them, that they don't have to. Because by the Catholic Church they were told they had to. Whatever it was that they had to, I don't know exactly what they had to. So it's a... It's a different thing. I don't tell them that they don't have to be Buddhist to make them find it appealing. I tell them that because I mean it. I have never said anything that I didn't mean. <laughs> I can't do it. I really mean it. But it's a different approach. It's, um, and this is probably the reason why I wound up in Germany. You know? Because I have that kind of uh, understanding. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> hmm? And you know, another thing which irked me all the years has been, um, and it, it doesn't irk me anymore, but it used to. I used to listen to some Western monks, uh, Theravadan monks, and they used to say, and I remember it like it was yesterday, although it's ten years ago, um, and more. They used to say that uh, in Christianity there's absolutely no way that you can have any insight because you always um, uh, have to have this union and you have to be there uh, and there's always God and uh, so you, you can't ever gain proper insight. And it used to irk me and I used to think that can't be so until I started reading the, the uh, mystics, the Christian mystics. I, I could never agree with that feelingly, but I didn't know enough at the time to argue, besides what's, what's the use of arguing. And, uh, but I always felt something wrong there, that isn't right. All religions have the same goal. Now you see, for instance, Islam. It's a really militaristic religion, isn't it? But Sufism is, the, uh, is their mystic part. And I, I'm real good friends now with Pierre Inyad Khan. He writes me pages and pages of letter uh, discussing the most, um, how shall I say, subtle mental formations and asking questions. And um, so I try to answer. And he has exactly the same goal that we have. And uh, it's not um, it's not like Islam at all. It's Sufism, you know. So if there is a truth, there's only one. There can't be many. There's only one. And I compare truth to the uh, to a mountain and to the summit. Truth is the summit of this mountain. Now you might decide that you're going to climb this mountain on the west side, the east side, the north or the south, doesn't matter. 
whatever you happen to be told is the best way to get up there. But up there on top, that's it. Once you're on top, you see the world the same way everybody else does it on top. There are several ways to get up there, sure, because some people live in the west and some live in the north and some southeast. Several ways to get up there. I think the Buddhist way is the easiest and best way to get up there, but um, because it's so explicit, we know what to do. But that doesn't mean that the other ways don't get you there. They do. A lot of people are trying to what? Different mountains, yes. Well, they get confused, sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You don't even have to read it. All you have to do is meditate and you'll know it. You know? But if you then read it after you've meditated, you think, oh, that's nice. They're even saying it, you know. It's Yeah, but the thing is that um, if there was a detailed method for people to follow, they would soon get to the understanding, you know. Okay, have we exhausted the questions? <laughs> All right, we'll... Um, Attend to the breath for just a few moments. Watch it going in and out of the nostrils to quieten the mind. And now imagine that you have a beautiful flower garden growing in your heart the most gorgeous blooms, lovely aroma, all growing in the soil of a loving heart and tended with care. And as you find yourself in the flower garden of your heart, you're happy, contented, And you feel loving and caring because there's so much beauty within you.
and now we'll make the most beautiful bouquet that we can think of different colors, aromas different blooms just as beautiful as we can make it and hand it with love to the person sitting nearest you And we'll think of our parents, whether they're still alive or not. And we'll find the most beautiful flowers in our heart and give them to them as a present. And we see the joy that this provides for them. think of those people who are nearest and dearest to us those that we might live with and for each of them we prepare a beautiful bunch of flowers out of our garden in the heart grown in love tended with care and given as a present showing that we feel our togetherness and want to make the other people happy without expecting to get anything back. And we think of our good friends and acquaintances and relatives. Everyone who comes to mind and for each of them we collect the most beautiful flowers we can find in our heart and hand it to them with love and care and concern for their well-being. And we can see that the more flowers we give away, the more of them grow in our heart. Now we think of those people whom we meet in our everyday life 
people we work with, our neighbours, or people in shops, on the street, whoever comes to mind, who is part of our daily happening. And for each of them, make a beautiful bouquet of flowers. Grown in love, tended with care, given as a present. To show our togetherness, to show that we're thinking of them in a loving way. we think of someone whom we find very difficult whom we've been angry at or who's been angry at us or if we don't have anybody like that in our lives then someone whom we feel quite neutral about And for this person also, we get the most beautiful flowers out of the flower garden in our heart and present them with love. And if there's been somebody who we've been angry at, we can feel the anger dissipating, the difficulty dissolving. we open our heart as wide as we can and allow as many people into the flower garden of our heart as possible first we let everyone in who is here and each one can take one of the beautiful flowers as a sign of our lovingness and we can see each time flowers are removed we have many more growing because we give them away in love and love makes them grow 